You can take your Bibles and you can open them to Genesis chapter 42 if you haven't made your way there already. We want to spend some time together in God's Word. We are rounding the bend of the book of Genesis. We're right in the middle of the the Joseph portion of the book of Genesis, and, and the Joseph narrative starts in verse chapter excuse me, 37, and it goes all the way to chapter 50, and it's the longest section in the book of Genesis in terms of a narrative account given to a particular individual. And we need to kind of sometimes, I think we can, we can make the mistake of, 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 of getting stuck looking at the tree when we study the Bible, and we forget about the forest, And I think we do this often. So sometimes we can look at um, individual accounts, we can look at people, and we can glean a lot of really good things from them like we will today, but we can forget sometimes that there's a much larger story going on that these individuals fit into, and if we miss the big picture, we actually miss the significance of their individual stories. And we need to remember that this family, the family of Jacob, is really a family that has been shattered by sin. We've seen this family fractured uh, beginning in chapter 37 when they hated their brother Joseph and they were going to kill him and instead decided to sell him off into slavery. And what we need to remember is this family is a family, yes, that has been shattered by sin, but it is the family that God has actually called to himself in order to begin the process of reconciling the world to himself, reconciling a world that has also been shattered and broken by sin. And God's design and desire is actually, I want you to think about this in light of this shattered family, It's significant. God wants to take this family of people in the world that is broken and unreconciled to God because of sin, and he wants to, through this family that is shattered by sin, begin the process of reconciling them back to himself. But in order for God to do that through this family, he needs to first reconcile this family to himself. God must remake this family before he begins the process of remaking the world through this family. And and there's an amazing parallel when it comes to you and me, this side of the cross. I want you to think about it. It's no mistake that Israel um, has 12 sons. It's no mistake that Jesus Christ, when he begins his ministry, he chooses 12 men. Through these 12 men, he's going to work in their hearts and lives to transform them in order that they might then be used to go out and reach the world and reconcile the world back to God as God begins his new creation work through the power of the gospel. You and I, if you're in Christ today, you are a part of the the church of Jesus Christ, the family of God that has been reconciled back to God. God is in the process of remaking us, his family, so that we can be used to go out and remake the world for his glory. God's going to do this through a variety of means. His process of changing us and transforming us is often uncomfortable. He's often 
testing us, refining us in order to both reveal and to accomplish this transformation in our lives. That's exactly what we see in these three chapters this afternoon. Joseph is kind of the conduit for God in these chapters. He's like a mediator for God. God is working through him in order to test and transform his brothers. And ultimately, what we're going to see at the end of this book is that this family is indeed reconciled not only to each other, but they're reconciled to God and they're ready to be used by God. But it's a fascinating few chapters because this plan that Joseph is working out, this test that he's employing on his brothers is kind of a a, a long con. That's the way I want you to think of it, okay? That's what we're going to see. It's a long con. This isn't a short test that he gives them. It's a long con that's going to take place over a series of, of days and months and perhaps even years. And it's going to come with a big reveal at the end, a shocking reveal, at least to the brothers. Under God's direction, Joseph's method is to reconstitute the temptations, to reuse the temptations to which the brothers succumbed when they sold him into slavery. There's a bunch of amazing, ironic reversals in this text where Joseph takes what his brothers did to him and he does the exact same thing to them, but it's not malicious. It's actually for their good. There is an amazing plan at work here. This story, which has so many parallels to our own lives, is most powerful, one author says, when we allow the events to speak for themselves as we follow the storyline. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to allow the story to speak for itself. So through these three chapters, here's what I want us to see and learn. We learn that God will test us in order to reveal three things. First, in order to reveal our conscience. And here's the question I want you to ask when it comes to conscience, have I grappled with my guilt? Let's read chapter 42. It says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but his brothers did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. 
And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back here, it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man of the Lord of the land said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money They were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, 
You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So much, so much going on in here, but I want you to simply see that this is the really first part of a three-part test that Joseph is employing in the life of his brothers. And, and it's a test of their conscience. So much of what he's doing is intended to be a subtle poke at their conscience to see whether or not they're willing to grapple with their guilt, to whether or not they're going to face up to what they have done to the very man they're standing in front of. And all of this is under the sovereign, providential hand of God. They need an awakening of conscience in order to be transformed. And for that to happen, they have to come face to face, literally, with their past. The famine is, is so severe, this is fulfilling the first part of the dream that Pharaoh had and Joseph had interpreted. There will be seven years of famine, and remember, Joseph was put in charge of everything. Go stockpile grain and food and resources. Get us ready for the famine. Well, the time of famine has come. Everything God said would come to pass has now come to pass. It's so severe that those in Canaan have to make the trek to go down to Egypt in order to buy grain. It's so severe that if they don't do this, they are going to die of starvation. This is really hard for us to fathom, isn't it, in a Western context? Can, can you imagine if every time you went to a grocery store over the next couple of years, there was no food in the aisles? Every fast food kind of drive through you pulled up to Nobody working because there was nothing to give anybody. Every time you picked up the phone to call Domino's to get a pizza delivered, you're met with, eh, eh, eh. nobody's there. There's no food. And so they take drastic measures. They go on this, this long trip because if they don't, they're dead. And again, remember, this is a part of what God is working out in their lives in order to transform them so that he can use them. And I want you to think about this in your life. You see, our lives are not a series of random events intended to confuse us. They're a series of providentially ordered circumstances intended to change us. You can look at your life and, and just think, man, this is hard. Everything just seems just so random, and why are these ups and downs, and why do I have to go through these trials? And you can be confused by them, or, or you can choose to step back from your story, and you can choose to believe that there's a sovereign God who is providentially working all things according to the counsel of his will, and he has a plan that he's working out in your life. And he's using those things in your life to do some serious transformational work in you. Sometimes God will bring 
or ordain a worldwide famine to expedite our internal transformation. God will do extraordinary things around us in order to do extraordinary things in us. And what's so amazing in this story is that they come into Egypt and they they bow their faces to the ground, again, fulfilling the dreams of Joseph. Joseph is very aware of what's taking place. He's never forgot the dream that he had back in chapter 37. The two dreams that he told to his brothers that incited his brothers with jealousy and hatred. You will one day bow down for me. Here it is happening in real time. And he can think this, all he can think is this, God is doing exactly exactly what he promised he would do. Man, it's taken a long time for God to do what he promised he would do. God is, God is you know, like Gandalf. He's never late. He's always on time. He always arrives exactly when he intends to. It's no small thing that we're told that Joseph remembers his dreams. This is key to the whole thing. This is showing the providence and sovereignty of God. They do not recognize him, though. This is amazing. But why would they? It's been 20 years. They threw him in the pit when he was 17 years old. He spent 13 years as either a slave or a prisoner, and he's made it through the first seven years of the good years before the famine hit. Now he's into the famine. It's 20 plus years at this point. Not only that, but Joseph has been elevated to second in command of the land. He is the Lord of the land. And you know what that means? That means he walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He looks... He looks like an Egyptian. Everything from his clothing to his facial hair, he would have looked very distinct from his brothers to the point where they would have not recognized him. I mean, he's even using an interpreter. Did you catch that? To communicate to them, which is further just concealing his identity. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is is shrewd. He's calculated. He is working out a plan in real time when he sees his brothers. He is not letting them in on the secret. No, not yet. He recognizes them immediately and he sets this plan in motion. Let me again just make it clear. Some people are uh, confused about this. This is not driven by spite. It's intended instead to test their character. He's not kind of taking revenge on them. That's not what this is. And we see that throughout this story. This is calculated. It is careful, but it is intended to draw things out of them. In fact, again, we just need to see this word used twice. Verse 15, we're told or verse 14, begin their story. It says, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. And, and the objective here is to see what kind of men they have become. Are they the same men that threw him into a pit and were willing to murder him, but then oh so graciously sold him to slavery? Or have they been changed over the years? 
And this idea of testing is important to understand. It's the very same word that Jeremiah 6.27 uses. It says, I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. Same word used in Psalm 66, verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. So I want you to think about these kind of tests in Joseph's brother's lives and the, the tests that God puts you through. Think about how someone would test metal to see if it's authentic, to see if, if it's pure, to see if it's been truly refined, purged of all the impurities. That's what he's doing here. And the test is simple. Uh, go and get this brother that you claim to have. But he has a deeper test in mind here. And again, the test is a test of their conscience, of their character. Are they the same men that they were who tried to kill him and sold him into slavery? And you'll notice he, he confines them, and it's, it's likely that what he did was he threw them for three days in a pit. How do you like that? He was years in a pit. Remember, they threw him in a pit in chapter 37, and then he was unjustly thrown in a pit because of Potiphar's wife, and now, and now, for three days, he allows them to sit in a pit and think. Listen, you gotta think about what this is provoking them. Hopefully, they're sitting in a pit, and hopefully what's going through the mind, remember that day when we threw our little brother into a pit. It's intended to pierce their conscience. And he says something stunning in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. That's a stunning statement to hear from the ruler of Egypt. And this would have been shocking to them because they're not expecting that, that here is a God-fearing, a Yahweh-fearing man. They're thinking that here this man worships the gods of Egypt. And again... He's pushing into their conscience. Do you see? There's an ironic kind of twist here. You know what he's communicating to them? Do you fear God? I do. You see, he's sifting their worth. He's sifting their character. And after thinking for three days about what they did, I think he's hoping that their conscience has been awakened. And the use of irony throughout this chapter, it, it highlights this, this, this pricking of the conscience, right? Think about these, these ironic kind of reversals. The one, the one, sorry, who oppressed are now being oppressed. The ones who threw their brother in prison were now imprisoned. The ones who deceived were now being deceived. The ones who are being accused of spies are now being spied on. Joseph is spying on them to figure out whether or not they've grappled with their guilt. They've dealt with their conscience. This chapter is about a lot of things, but at its heart, it is about the awakening of the conscience. And, and Paul in Romans talks about the, the role that the conscience plays in the life even of an unbeliever. It has two functions. Our, our conscience can be activated and it can be used to accuse us rightly of our sin, or we can kind of sear our conscience, resist what our conscience is trying to tell us, and we can allow our conscience to be so seared that we can instead excuse our sin. 
And you see, spiritual awakenings have always begun with an awakening of the conscience. Always, throughout history, there have been a multiple kind of uh, a great awakenings, two in particular in the United States, but, but awakenings, spiritual awakenings, broadly speaking or individually, they always begin with an awakening of the conscience, an understanding of guilt, a recognition of sin, a feeling of the weight of sin and the offense it is against a holy God. There is no spiritual awakening apart from an understanding of your guilt before God. Verse 11, I know you caught this. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. But can you hear? Can you hear what the conscience is supposed to be screaming? Are you really though? (laughs) Sure, you're, you're being honest about not being spies, but have you been honest with your past? Have you been honest with what you did to your brother? Have you been honest with the most horrific thing you have ever done in your life, or have you simply swept it under the rug, tried to bury your sin? And the heart of this passage reveals that their conscience is being awakened. They are deeply aware of their guilt and their dishonest past. Look again at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, here it is. This is, the, this is the honesty that God is trying to draw out of them. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? It brings us back into the picture. Remember when they threw him into the pit? And we didn't hear anything about, about his response in 37. We, we hear silence. But what we find out now, right, is that as they sat there and they ate a meal while their brother was in a pit, he pled with them for his life. He begged them not to do this. I'm sure with weeping and tears, calling out repeatedly, and the of that moment has lived in their conscience for 20 plus years. They can't get rid of it. It just, wherever they go, whatever they do, there it is. The unbearable weight of their sin that they've never truly dealt with. What they're coming face to face with now in this moment. They've never really had peace. It's never been, as we have just sung, well with their soul. And perhaps they've been trying to assuage their conscience in various ways, but right now in this moment, their eyes are opening and their heart is softening to the reality of their guilt. Joseph's blood cries out from the land. There is a reckoning. And the question is, what will they do? What will they do? Joseph has set this this plan in motion, this test. Isn't it amazing? He put their monies back in their sacks. Why would he do this? There's fear. There's fear in their hearts. Why? They think think they're in big trouble. 
Somebody's gonna think they stole this. Somebody's, somebody's coming after us for this. And so here's the big question. What he's doing is he's putting pressure on them. He's, he's actually making it difficult for them to have, you know, to have to now go back. He's, putting, he's stacking the cards against them. So they're gonna have to wrestle with their guilt in a unique way, face up to their past in order to survive, in order to live. Believe me, he's talking about this in a physical sense. But believe me, there is a spiritual parallel at work here. You cannot live if you will not deal with the sin of your past. If you will not deal with the guilt of your sin. And that's the question really for us as we look at this chapter. Where do you find yourself when it comes to dealing with your sin, to grappling with your own guilt? Where's your conscience at right now when you think about sin? Sin in your past, sin in your life. And I want you to think about this for a moment. I don't want you to move too quickly past this. I want you, some of you in here, there is sin in your, we all have sin in our past, okay? We all have things in our past that we would be ashamed if they were kind of brought up in a public setting, right? That we would just be humiliated and embarrassed. But, but many of us have dealt with that sin before the Lord. But some of us in this room right now, there are sins in our past we have never truly dealt with. We've simply buried and you know, because, because every time the thought of that sin comes up, you just live under guilt and shame and condemnation. And you run from it. You keep, you keep retreating, you keep burying it, you keep trying to ignore it, thinking that if you just don't think about it long enough, if you just keep yourself busy with other things, if you work harder at being a good person now, maybe you'll feel better about your past, and I promise you that'll never work. You need to come to grips with your sin, whether it's in your past or maybe, maybe there's sin in your present. Maybe right now, right now, you are living in some deep-seated sin. In a room this size, I have no doubt in my mind that there are somebody in here who's living an absolute double life. Absolute double life. You present really well when you walk in through these doors in church and maybe really well to your friends, maybe even really well to your family, but you have been living a double life. Maybe, maybe you've been living a life that's been steeped in sexual immorality. Maybe you've been just kind of burying it, hiding it, just presuming and assuming that you will not get caught, that your sin will not find you out. Maybe there's some hidden sin in your life right now that God, listen, God is trying to provoke right now, right now in this moment, in your heart, and he's doing this out of love for you because he doesn't want you to live in the shame and guilt of your sin. He wants you to come out of that. He wants you to experience freedom from that. He doesn't want you as a prisoner, as a slave to your sin. He died for that. He died to release you from the power and the penalty of sin. How then can we live in sin willingly? Maybe for some of you, there's a future sin in mind. Maybe right now, you're in here and you're, on the, you're contemplating a future decision that is going to be so destructive to your soul. Maybe you're thinking about walking out of your family. Maybe you're thinking about having an affair on your spouse. Maybe you're thinking about doing something so, so dumb and dangerous, it will be irretrievable. The damage you will do will wreak such havoc in your own life and the life of all those that you love. And God right now is trying to provoke your conscience. He's trying to spiritually awaken Awaken you to the reality of what brings death and what brings life. 
Sin will always, always, always lead you into a kind of death. But when you grapple with your guilt and you allow your conscience to be awakened to your sin, you see that you have no way of undoing your past. You have no way of atoning for your sin, but you can be reminded right now that you are desperately in need of a savior and the God of this universe has sent his only beloved son to save you from your sins. I love 1 John 1, 7. It says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You don't have to walk in the darkness, church. You don't have to live with the sting of a guilty conscience. You can be awakened and converted and enjoy the forgiveness and cleanness that comes only through Jesus Christ. That's what this first test is trying to do in the lives of Joseph's brothers. The second test is this. God will test us to reveal our comprehension. Have I grasped God's grace? So natural progression here in the test that he's giving his brothers. He's moving from guilt to grace, which is the way the gospel works. Let's read this together. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Just listen, underline that, underline that. That is physical, but there is spiritual, spiritual depth here. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid 
because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. This chapter continues to draw us into the past sins of this chosen family. They were a, a jealous bunch. Keep that in mind, and that this is really what the test is getting at. You remember back in chapter 37, they, they knew that jealousy was paired with the favoritism of Jacob, right? They, they knew that Joseph was the favorite son. I mean, he had a, a whole coat and everything. And then he had these dreams, but they, they looked at the coat, and it, you know what it says in chapter 37? They saw him in his coat, and they hated him because they were jealous. Jealousy is, is wanting what someone else has or are pained by the thought that someone else has what you do not have. That's, that's what jealousy looks like in our lives. Or envy, those two things can often be understood synonymously. And jealousy is one of the, the great ruiners of relationships, isn't it? I mean, jealousy will destroy some of the, the tightest relationships, the most close-knit relationships. Think about uh, how often people are jealous, even in family situations, over money, over an inheritance and a will, and how that can often just, just shatter a family. 
And jealousy is something that's so frequent in our own lives. If we're honest and we really, we really pay attention to what's going on in our own hearts, we will see that we're often far more jealous than we realize. We envy more than we realize. We can be jealous of somebody's appearance. Right? How often do we look at somebody else and think, man, I wish I looked like that. I wish I, I had those kind of features or that kind of, those kind of genes. Or, you know, or we can look at somebody and we can be jealous of their abilities. Maybe you look at somebody, you know, who's athletic and you're like, man, I just wish I could, I could do what they could do and how come they're so gifted and I'm not? Or look at how they excel in the business world or in sales or whatever it is. They just seem to be climbing the ladder so easily. Everything comes so easy to them and it's so hard for me. Why can't I, I have the same kind of abilities that they have? Maybe it's accolades. We look at the way that people have been praised and rewarded and honored, the positions that they hold and we long for those same things. Maybe it's their assets. And we just think, man, I, I wish I had a house like that. I wish I could drive cars like that. I wish I had a bank account where I had that much money. I mean, man, I just wish, I wish I had all these things. Jealousy, jealousy so often goes along too with favoritism. Even in our own lives. Right? Think about how, how much harder, how, how much more jealous we get when we think that somebody hasn't earned what they've got. They were given it because of some connection they had, some kind of you know, nepotistic relationship that allowed them to kind of get to this, but they didn't really earn it. They didn't really deserve it. They weren't really suited for it, but they got it all anyways. It, it's such a big problem in our hearts, especially when we believe it's unfair. How come they get something that they don't really deserve and what we're inherently saying when we believe those kind of things is we deserve it. We, we do. And Joseph, again, he's in this predicament because his brothers were jealous of him, remember? Again, that favored brother was the big problem. They had to get rid of him. And now Benjamin is the favorite, right? Poor guy, got to grow up with these brothers. And he has no idea that they did to Joseph, but again, remember, they've been living with the sting of their conscience, so maybe he's had a much better life. Obviously, he, he's not dead. He's got that going for him. But he's still a favorite. I mean, his father wouldn't even send him with them to go to Egypt. That's how much he loved this child. He's like, guys, listen, I just can't risk anything happening to this guy. You guys don't really care. This guy, that's a different story. It's pretty remarkable when you think of it, right? And that would destroy any family. And this chapter addresses these issues in the lives of Joseph's brothers. That the jealousy, what Joseph is testing is this. Are you still the kind of jealous, envious men that you once were? Are you these, these self-entitled men who think you are the ones who deserve everything? It's what he's going at in their hearts. And they bring this present in verse 11. And this is fascinating. The merchandise here that they bring, remember all those foods, the pistachios, the almonds, the gum, those exact things are the very same things. The only other place they're mentioned in the entire Bible altogether is in chapter 37. And that, that's mentioned in that Ishmaelite caravan. That's what they were carrying when they took Joseph away. The irony. You gave me to these guys who were carrying me off into slavery and now you're bringing me the same gifts that they were bringing back to sell in Egypt. Joseph's going to put them to the test here. And here's what he does. 
he seats the brothers, the 11 brothers, according to their exact birth order. Now, you gotta, some are like, oh, that's kinda cool. No, this is insane. If you don't know this is your brother, you're like, how? These guys, you gotta remember, this is, like, why did he think they were spies in the first place? These are a bunch of old guys coming together in a gang, okay? This is, like, they're all older than Joseph. Think about it, he's over 30 years old. Every one of these guys is between the ages of 30 and 50. That's a weird picture. All these men coming together, 10, 11 guys, you know, beards. They're, they're, they're all wrinkly and old, beaten down by the sun, I guess. Maybe they just use a lot of olive oil, I don't know. It's a famine, so they don't look good, okay? So, he puts them in their exact birth order. They, and they're, you know, it's, it's just stunning. They're sitting there going like, what? <laughs> It's, they're amazed. They're amazed. Like, is this some kind of coincidence? What, what's happening here? What are the odds of getting them all in their birth order? I'll tell you, I can hardly keep my three kids straight sometimes. <laughs> and he wants them to think something. He wants them to think, who is this man? And then he, he feeds them. He gives them a feast. And think about how good this would have been in the midst of a, a famine. He gives them a feast, but he gives to Benjamin five times as much as he gives to any other guy. It's, and again, if you're the same old person, you know what you're thinking? Well, here it goes again. Favoritism to the youngest. Oh, those younger brothers, they get everything. My younger brother's just shaking his head at me. How dare you? How dare you? This is such a good test, by the way. I mean, this is, a, this, this is brilliant. Okay, you want to make one of your children happy, give them a cookie. You want to make them incredibly unhappy, give their brother two cookies. <laughs> and his point is, who have you, again, who have you become? How will you respond now? With hate, with anger, with malice, with murder. Because that, according to Paul in the New Testament, is the very heart of covetousness. There's an idolatry that he's rooting out of their hearts. And 20 years later, the response is so telling. There's no jealousy. There's only enjoyment for they drank and were merry with him. They celebrated. They celebrated. And this is so subtle, but it's so, so powerful. They seem to have come to grips with the raging jealousy in their hearts that at one point tore their family apart. You see, how did this change take place? How do we deal with the jealousy in our own hearts? How do we overcome the temptations toward jealousy and envy in our own lives? One word, grace. Grace. You're like, that seems too easy. Yes. It's that simple. It's that easy. Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. And it's in grasping grace that you understand that you have no reason to be jealous of anybody. And I, I want you just to see how this kind of pops off the page here. In, in verse 14, I want you to, to hear these words. 
One more time, verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy, grace, mercy, kindness. That's the idea before the man. That's the prayer of Jacob. Look at verse 23. Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasures in you. Look what God has given you. Catch the mercy and the grace picture there. And then in verse 29, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. He's just overwhelmed with compassion. Yes, yes for Benjamin. Yes, his heart melts when he sees him. He misses his brother. He loves his brother. This is his brother from the same mother, remember. His his blood brother in the pure sense and he's overwhelmed but this passage is intended all these mentions of mercy and kindness and grace is supposed to tell us look at all the grace mercy 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 grace 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 that's what people get from God And the lesson is clear. Joseph got more than you guys did, yes. Benjamin got five times more than you, but you got more than you deserve, and you have never been given what you truly deserve for your sin. Wow. That's amazing. You ever think about that? Next time you're inclined to be jealous of what somebody else has, just just remind yourself, I've got more than I deserve, and I haven't been given what I do deserve. I haven't been justly punished for my sin. You see, grasping God's grace is key to putting jealousy to death, and it's at the heart of reconciling relationships. That's true on an earthly level. Some of you, you need to wrestle with this in your own hearts. Because you have never come to grips with grace in a way that helps you reconcile your earthly relationships that have been broken by sin. You're so bent out of shape. You're so angry. You're so filled with rage. Because you see everything through a lens of fairness. That's not fair. That's not fair. I didn't deserve that. They didn't, they shouldn't have treated me like that. And listen, I, I get that. There's, of course, nobody deserves to be mistreated. Nobody. But if we live there, if we, if we just live through that lens of, of how we have been hurt and victimized, and I mean, that just, it sours us in our relationships. We begin to despise people, and we begin to be filled with so much rage towards people. And for some of you in this room, that has ruined your relationships. Some of you in this room, you can't look at your spouse without bitterness and resentment Some of you, this is directed toward God. You look at your life, you look at your circumstances, and you just believe that God has not been fair to you. God, this isn't right, it's not fair, it's not kind, it's not good. I want to remind you what Jesus says. He gives this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, and he's describing jealousy there in one sense, right? You remember that parable where Jesus says, uh, you know, he, he invites all these workers to come work in the vineyard, and he, he, he invites them all at different times, but he gives them the same pay, and the ones who started earlier got the same pay, and they come back to Jesus, and the, you know, in the story, Jesus is the, the, the manager, and, and they're like, the heck, why do they get the same? I, I was working longer, and Jesus' response is this, don't I have the right to give to whoever I want, whatever I want? Isn't that my right? And his point is this, anything you get, anything you get from me, it's all undeserved. It's 
all, all of grace, all of it, every part of it. They got their money, they've got their grain, they've got a feast with the second in command in Egypt. And I wanna end on three applications. We're gonna close our sermon here um, and we're gonna pick up chapter 44 next week. We'll build that into the sermon. Under the sovereignty of God, God decided two chapters, not three. And let me just give you three applications when it comes to understanding a grace in your life. First, realize that everything you have is a gift from God. Everything. This is what God wants us all to comprehend. Every single thing you have, and you're like, well, I worked really hard. I've got all these skills and abilities. God gave you those skills and abilities. God gave you strength every day. God gave you breath every day. God gave you those opportunities every day. Anything you think you've done on your own is all, all, all an act of God's grace and kindness and mercy towards you. Secondly, rest content in the gifts he's given to others. This is harder, but this goes right to the heart of jealousy. Rest content in the gifts that he's given to others. Believe that God is fair, kind, merciful. Believe that God can do whatever he wants for whoever he wants, whenever he wants. And instead of being angry about that, rejoice. Rejoice, celebrate those things in the lives of others. And that leads to the third application, and that's simple. It's just rejoice. Rejoice in the God of sovereign mercy. Just rejoice. Rejoice in what he's given to you. Rejoice in what he's given to others. Rejoice right now that God, if you're in Christ today, has not given you what you deserve, and he's given you in Christ more than you could ever want or need. He's given you every blessing of the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. He's not withhold a single one of his spiritual blessings for you here today. Regardless of what you may experience or have in this life, he's given you every spiritual blessing in this life. Grasping God's grace transforms our lives. Next week, we're gonna look at one final test And I want to encourage you to see that in all of this, all of these tests, God is lovingly drawing out the heart of the sinner in order that they might know the great love and kindness of the Savior. God wants to save you by the work of his son. He wants to wash and cleanse you. He wants to free you from all of your guilt. He wants to lavish you with all of his grace. He wants to take you and transform you. He wants to remake you in order that you might be used by him to advance his kingdom and his glory in this world that he is allowing you at this moment in time to live in by his grace. Let's pray. Father, you are kind and gracious. We love you. And we pray now, Father, that you would stir our hearts with your love that you have lavished upon us. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace. Thank you that we no longer in Christ Jesus have to live under the condemnation and shame and guilt of sin, but we can be set free, free by your love, by your mercy, by your kindness. And we, O oh Lord, can build our lives upon what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. 
Take us, O Lord, change us and transform us. Make us more and more, we pray, like our Savior whom we love because he has first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.